show. With me today, we're honored and privileged to have Dr. David Head uh, from Central Florida here as uh, Kentucky Wesleyan's Distinguished Faculty Fellow in History for 2023. Dr. Head, welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, so Dr. Head is here uh, on a few different engagements today um, to talk about um, a few of your books, your, your last book and your most current project. Um, you are a historian of uh, the American Revolution, um, but um, has extended that, your coverage into the early republic, a period that I, I know a little bit about. So uh, we're, we're just so uh, pleased to have you on campus today and really look forward to your talk. Um, in preview of that, I was hoping that you could give just a little bit of your background, where you're from maybe, and what, you're, what you teach, and, you know, and then we'll just we'll go from there. Okay, well, thank you very much for having me here. I'm, I'm looking forward to our, our day together. So I'm originally from Buffalo, New York, and um, I teach at the University of Central Florida in Orlando, and I usually teach the survey classes. So I teach mostly the freshmen and the sophomores. Um, UCF is a very large school, over 70,000 students, I think is what the, the count is. And my classes are routinely 150 students or more, sometimes over 200. So uh, probably a very different experience from a, a small college environment. I usually teach um, U.S. history, the first half of the survey, so from Columbus through the Civil War and Reconstruction. And then I also teach Western Civ, the old, the old part, the ancient uh, Western Civ, with the Greeks and the Romans and, uh, the and the medieval, yes, and all that kind of thing. And I really like teaching that. I, I had really no preparation for that previously, um, but it's wonderful because I'm learning along with the students about ancient Greece and ancient Rome. And in many ways, it's often easier to teach that stuff than American history because when we get like the American Revolution, I know the difference between like 1763 and 1768, and that's not really important for the students to know that kind of detail. But when we get to Western Civ, I can say everything I know about Caesar in about 15 minutes, and then we move on from there, and, and it's perfectly fine. So I, I enjoy teaching that class. I really enjoy teaching that class a lot. But I think, I think ancient history is a really good primer for you know, the revolution and the early republic in, in particular. I mean, there's models. Right. It's the, it's the models of governance that they're, they're looking at, looking to the Roman Republic and trying to understand why it failed and then how to prevent that kind of failure in the United States. It's also really useful because a lot of those leaders, and not just the leaders, but kind of the public discourse of that American Revolution, early Republic period, they just know all these references to these ancient Romans and ancient Greeks, and they don't have to explain who they are. Right. When they um, reference Cincinnatus, right, for Washington, mm-hmm. like, you don't have to explain that that's a Roman general who went home, was called to service, and then rather than staying as a dictator, he went back home to his field. And this had enormous significance for... Uh, the ideal of a leader and all. You don't have to say any of that, right? right. You can just say that he's, he'll be a Cincinnatus or something. Oh, of course, yeah. we know all sure, about that, sure, well, sure. everything it is. So in some ways, if you want to understand their mental universe, you need to understand something about who these, who these guys were. Um, or you really end up Googling a lot of that stuff now, <laughs> which, is really, which is really useful, right? Who were these obscure Romans? Right? Okay, yeah. you who they are. Right. So yes, I really do. It, it is very helpful to have that that kind of background now. I don't want to. I don't want to uh, keep interrupting you here. Um, I'm interested in your story, and uh, I, I don't want to nerd out too much on okay. it really quick. Uh, but so, what, what got you interested in in the revolution and the early republic? So I think what what got me interested in history more generally um, was really the influence of my mom. 
Um, now we were, we were kids. We would go to some of the historic sites like Mount Vernon and places like that. But I think more important than looking at those kind of big name events and things was the way my mom would usually, she would always, um, she kept these calendars where she would record something that everyone in the family did like every day. Um, and when we would talk about whatever event, you know, she would go and look it up. Like, so, so what did we do for Christmas in 2003? Hmm. Well, we can go look up what we did for Christmas in 2003. Uh, she, would also, she would also remember things, either the number, right? So February 9th, okay, what we did when February 9th in the past. But she'd also remember the day of the week. So what did we do on the second Thursday in February back in whatever year? Um, and just kind of having that awareness that what we did in the past – our family did in the past shapes what we're doing now that is worth something remembering. Mm. I think that had a more subtle influence on me in my choice of career, but I think a more lasting one. Mm. Uh, so it's never been for me just about knowing more about these big famous people. You know, I'd like to do that too, but it's also right. How does the circumstances you grow up in the time you grow up in, how does that affect what you think and, and what you, what you care about and how you live? It, it, that, that shaped me very early on that experience. You also, she was producing a kind of like source record, you know, this is the kind of stuff you look for in the past sources, uh, the kind of documentation about how people lived, produced at the time. That's a primary source, right? Um, I'm not, I don't know that anybody else would ever be interested in it, but our family certainly is. And I think about the circumstances, how she produced that, right? So I'm one of six children, and I don't know how she had the time to write down something that we did. I, I have the calendars. Um, I have all of them now. And I look at some of the early ones, and yeah, it's a little sparser when the kids were younger and everything. As we got older, you had more time. To, then they become like all the all the squares on the calendar completely full with something. Um, so just kind of trying to understand like how she produced these these kinds of things. I've tried to do that for my own children, and I just can't keep up with it. Um, I found that if nothing, there's either not enough going on, so I don't feel like, well, what do I? We went to the grocery store today. That doesn't seem important enough. Or times are too busy and I don't have time to do it. So, you know, unfortunately, we might not have that gift to give to my kids one day. But it really is wonderful to have that kind of experience. The question of why um, I looked at the early republic and the American Revolution, that was really the influence of um, my grad school advisor. So I went to grad school not entirely knowing what era I wanted to specialize in and just kind of go to school and just kind of see what's out there. And my advisor, uh, uh, Tamara Thornton at the University of Buffalo, she specialized in early Republic, kind of American Revolution, that era. And uh, taking classes with her and kind of following along with her interests was a big influence on me. And then, you know, she explained to me kind of for practical reasons as far as the, the job market goes, that's always in the mind of grad students, Kind of the earlier, the better for American history. Um, so I was thinking for a while about doing later 19th century, kind of Victorian era. So I said, well, if it doesn't really make any difference to you, try to do earlier. I'm like, okay, we'll, we'll try to do earlier. Uh, it's kind of a practical, strategic suggestion. In the same vein, that's, uh, so I started out, my first book was about uh, really the early republic, the 18-teens. I wrote about Americans who became privateers. Uh, privateers are uh, privately owned vessels who have a commission from the government at war to attack an enemy. 
And these, these were men who became privateers on behalf of the Spanish-American countries that are seeking their independence from Spain in the 18-teens. I then got into the American Revolution largely for a practical reason. I was looking for a second book topic. Um, Privateers uh, was my first book topic, so I want to write something else. I need another topic. But I realized I needed something that did not involve a lot of archival uh, material, like in-person travel to archives. Mm -hmm. Given that I have a young family, I just could not travel the way I could when I was single in grad school. So I needed something that I could do mostly from home. And it turns out the American Revolution, for various reasons, is extremely well documented. Um, and lots of resources have been published right, and made available, including online. There's a wonderful resource called Founders Online that the um, National Archives sponsors. And this is the collected works of guys like Washington and Adams and Jefferson and Hamilton and Franklin. There are various uh, papers that are being published. They're all digitized. So you can search that from home. And that was just really wonderful. A lot of stuff um, that has not been published has been uh, microfilmed. Because these are big, important, you know, American founders. So they microfilmed all their stuff. You can, re- you can request that from interlibrary loan. So then I can just go over to my library and look at that kind of thing. And now with like Google Books or uh, archive.org, a lot of these 19th century books, including like memoirs that these uh, soldiers and officers wrote when they were, when they were older, all that stuff has been digitized. When I was doing my dissertation, I went to the Library Company of Philadelphia, which is a, it was originally founded by Benjamin Franklin, and has a, it's, a, it's a rare book collection. So you used to go there to look. That's one of the places you could find some of these books. Uh, a couple of years ago, I, I just got curious and said, you know, I wonder if this stuff is out there online. Did, did I really have to, that trip I made in 2006? Yeah. Right, did I have to make that trip? No, I wouldn't have had to make that trip yeah. anymore. Yeah. Uh, most of the things I wanted to look at, you can get them on Google Books or someplace else. Yeah. Not everything, but a lot of that stuff is and just it continues there to now. grow every day. There's more resources online. Right. It's just in- incredible. Now, if you want to do a different kind of project, there are lots of projects. One of my, my historian colleagues' friends, especially my uh, Europeanist friends, will, will kill me if I give the impression that everything's available digitally and there's sure. no reason to go to Europe. There's a lot of stuff that is one of a kind in manuscript you have to go to. But I specifically selected a topic where I wouldn't have to, to travel a whole lot and could do most of it from home or from the library. Again, so, so this was something I encourage students to think about, especially if you think about grad school. I tell my own you know, uh, MA students, right, think about the practical part. Right? Is this something you can do, right. given all your other responsibilities? Is this something that you can do? And, of course, most of them ignore me. They want to do 20th century history. Um, but hopefully at least plant some kind of seed that, the practical parts of this matter a lot, too. Well, and that's, uh, I think that's pretty typical of most historians is you start with really grand designs mm-hmm. on what you, you know, want to get out of a project and, you know, your ambitions are, you know, overweening. Mm-hmm. And then, and then uh, the dissertation is really a process of kind of honing that down <laughs> into a, you know, chronological era, into a, you know, a distinct or a period, and then in specific actors, specific topics, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, uh, theoretical orientations and, and closer and closer and closer and closer so you can get it done within you know three or four years the, the folks that don't finish dissertations are the ones that sort of work from the opposite end mm-hmm. they, they they start with something relatively small but then sort of over research mm-hmm. and well if i'm you know 
going to understand epistemology, obviously. I need Kant in there, and then mm-hmm. I, you know, the, they go down different, you know, tunnels and, and dark alleys and whatever. Yeah. And then, you know, six or seven years later, they're just, oh, I just, I need to pick up German. You know, that's the only way to do justice to this story. And then, you know, your time has passed. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it, it is an interesting, you know, kind of process to, to hone your, your subject. Um, I think those, you know, for me, the most interesting parts of your, your, your books have been those personal stories. Mm-hmm. And this is why biography is so, right, imp- so, right, yeah. so wonderful. Right, wonderful medium. So I want to I want to back into the Newburgh conspiracy, mm-hmm. um, which is the the subject of your uh, most recent book, not the one that's about to come out, but your most recent one, published in twenty nineteen, uh, by talking about George Washington in the main. So, um, you know, and and I want to talk about some of the mythology because certainly the Newburgh conspiracy plays into the mythology, mythologizing right. about. You mentioned Cincinnati at the start, um, you know, alone digging in his field, mm-hmm. and soldiers come up and they give him the title dictator. Right. And they say, well, you lead, and the, 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 the title dictator is the kind of supreme office of, of uh, you know, you get all powers, war mm-hmm. powers, you're the, uh, you know, the chief priest of the state, you're everything, for a period of time. And it's an all-powerful position. You can, you know, kill people and mm-hmm. hire people and pay people and do everything. Um, and then, you know, so Cincinnati takes that and I think defeats, I could be wrong, the Sabines. Um, the Sabines are always, you know, um, trouble. And, uh, and then goes right back to his field, gives up those powers. And so well, who would give up power? And it, it was such a powerful statement for the Romans, especially in the Republic, because they spent their entire lives aspiring to power. Right. Uh, that trajectory, the, the curia honorum, was just all about this kind of layering of offices. And eventually, by the time you're 60-plus, you finally reach the, either a council or a censor. censor. And then you are it. So to be given the title dictator and then to give those powers up voluntarily, right, is just, it's amazing. And then to attribute that to, to Washington, um, certainly, you know, the, the, the Cincinnati, which is, you know, mm-hmm. a couple hours down the road from us here, um, you know, is, is quite a statement and plays into, you know, the kind of life and the qualities of Washington that um, were started very early. Um, uh, the, I think the earliest really biographies of great American figures, they started with Washington. Right. So could you talk a little bit about the, the myths and mythology of Washington and you know, where that started and, and how that's influenced public perception of Washington today? Right, so that myth-making is, is going on during Washington's own lifetime. Um, I have a, a little, little story in the book about how Washington is visiting Philadelphia this is after the victory at Yorktown, which ends up being the last major battle, um, but before there's a peace treaty. So this period where there's the wars either on or maybe not, maybe it's off. So he's in Philadelphia and he makes a he goes to the theater. Washington likes to go to the theater for entertainment, and there's a the people they sing a song um, that has a verse about the godlike Washington. They, you know, he's our great hero. He's delivered us from the British. At a time when Washington's trying to remind everybody that, no, we, there's still a war on. We might have to go back and fight. Um, so this kind of mythologizing Washington as a godlike figure who has been singular in delivering the, the country from its enemies. That was something that was present right there at the beginning. And that's something that um, you know, builds throughout the 19th century. One of my favorite statues of Washington is my favorite because it's so wildly inappropriate to mm-hmm. anything he would have wanted. There's this massive statue at the Smithsonian in, um, in Washington, D.C., 
in which uh, Washington is seated like a Roman lawgiver, and he is, I believe he is semi-nude, right? And he's, he's just a totally kind of draped over his, his otherwise naked chest. Right. And it's just so wildly out of scale and out of, out of, out of, uh, out of proportion um, in a style that he, that's, that's what he wouldn't have liked. And that's what 19th century people thought of Washington, right, as the great deliverer and hero. I believe that that statue was supposed to stand in the Capitol. Uh, but then somebody came to their senses and realized this wasn't going to work there. Um, I believe Washington was also supposed to be buried in the Capitol. Uh, but now he's, he's buried at Mount Vernon. So, again, this idea that have like a, like a relic or somebody, right, the great uh, center of American democracy, that connection to Washington is so important. A lot of those stories, um, you know, a lot of historians have been working on kind of pushing those stories aside and trying to get at who Washington really was. It's difficult because Washington was very restrained. Um, now, he had a very bad temper, but he worked very hard over his life to kind of restrain his emotions. Washington did not like to have other people really know who he really was. Mm. Um, the idea of having kind of a public figure kind of public mask. Mask sounds negative, but it wasn't meant to have a negative connotation. Kind of a public face in which you embody all the great virtues that you're supposed to have. That's what you strive to be. Not necessarily making your private, who you are in private, letting other people see that. It's a different way of thinking about things than we do today. Today, I think, um, so character is one of the key words for Washington. And in our world, character is supposed to be what you do when no one's watching, Right. That's um, uh, I learned that uh, it was John Wooden, the uh, UCLA, UCLA basketball coach, mm-hmm. who first coined that, that, that saying, that character is what you do when no one's watching. In the 18th century, for Washington, character is what you do when everyone's watching. Mm. It's, it's the opposite. Character doesn't make any sense if no one's watching. Who, you, know, you do things in private. Well, that's your private business. It's, it's who you are as a public person. That's what matters the most. So Washington is very hard to, to know. Uh, so trying to kind of penetrate through there is, is interesting. I really like reading Washington's papers when he gets angry about things. Mm. Something that really surprised me that I didn't appreciate before doing the research is that Washington is surprisingly sarcastic. Mm. You don't think of him that way. Uh, you don't think of him as being witty like, uh, like Franklin was or anything. Uh, supposedly, he was a, a very agreeable uh, person to have dinner with, right, in person. You know. But, yeah, some of his letters that come out, the sarcasm where you can tell he's really mad about something and he's trying very hard to restrain it, mm-hmm. but he can't quite keep it all in. Mm-hmm. So he makes these sarcastic remarks about people. When he loses his temper, is really, is really fun to see. Uh, when he loses that control, it's, it's just, you know, so you see that's what he's struggling against all the time. I mean, he had a large part in making that mythology about himself. Well, definitely, yeah. This is the, he's definitely trying. He wants to be seen a certain way. And he is trying to influence the way other people see him, for sure. How do you think he would have felt? Of, so Mason Weems is the you know the earliest mm-hmm. biography I'm thinking of. How, how do you think he would have felt about Mason Weems? As, uh, right, some stuff he probably would have been embarrassed about, right? These, these stories that you know about him as a kid and chopping down the cherry tree, and then his father and, and all that kind of thing. Um, perhaps excessively emotional might have been, um, you know, that that glimpse into him because you're starting to get in the 19th century more sort of Victorian sensibility and all that um, that might have embarrassed him uh, how those kind of stories told about his, his origins so so what can you say I guess I'm interested in in the um, and I hope other people are too in how the mythologizing about Washington affected our our assumptions our interpretations of his 
his uh, ability to govern, but but before that, his ability to lead and his, um, you know, as a as a general, was he effective? Was he a, a, a tactician? Was he was he strategically minded? Assess his his um, his military prowess. Right, so Washington, I think overall, our image of him is kind of being this great leader who was didn't take sides. Right, who's above? Who's above the fray? That's certainly one of the ways he wanted to appear, and that's sometimes the way he's remembered. That glosses over the fact that he was a very talented politician, mm-hmm. uh, capable of you know analyzing supporters and enemies, and how how do we pay, make this particular move to get our advantage over somebody else? Um, so yes, he was a very talented politician. Was not you know above politics or anything. He was right down in there doing politics. And that's one of his skills as a, as a commander-in-chief. Uh, you asked his skills about a general. I think as a general, meaning kind of tactics on the battlefield or strategy, he's average at best. Um, Washington, he tends to be indecisive uh, during the heat of battle. He's okay if he has time to prepare. Okay, so like the, invade, the, uh, the crossing across the Delaware River to attack the, um, the Hessians in New Jersey. And he's time to prepare. He can come up with a good plan. If there's an obstacle in the heat of the moment, he's not so great. Um, there's a famous, uh, well, there's a, an episode where there's a, a stone house the British occupy. I, I think it's the Battle of Brandywine in, in, uh, in, in, uh, outside of Philadelphia. And they're trying to shell this, this, this building. They can't knock it down, right? So the idea is, be, well, we'll just go around this, okay? Keep going. It's like, no, we're going to knock this thing down. And he gets sidetracked with this, kind of gets stubborn about it. Yeah. As a strategic thinker, he tends to also get fixated on things like attacking New York City. Uh, one of the great examples is where uh, he learns that the French fleet is going to be available for action in the fall of 1781, which means that if he hurries, they could trap the British in Yorktown okay, with the French fleet. Washington greets this news. His first impulse is, you know what this, mean- this means, right? We can go attack New York City with the French. Like, no, we missed the point. We, we got them trapped in Virginia. We don't need to go to New York. Right. Yeah. We can really do New York. No, can't we? <laughs> like, no, we can't. Let's do this other thing. Okay, the other thing. Washington excels, though, where he's actually essential, and no one else had the talent, though, was to combine the military thinking with the politics, hmm. to be able to keep the support of the Continental Congress, and to be knowing that he was the symbol of the revolution to play that role very effectively to keep people supporting the revolution when the British were doing, doing very well and the American army was almost completely dissolved. The money was running out, all those bad times. Washington was able to keep the political support for the war going. Uh, so combining the military understanding with the politics, that was the job of the commander-in-chief, right, to see the whole, not just the whole battlefield, the whole country, but the, poli- the political and the financial and all those kind of supply issues Washington was excelled at seeing the whole picture and combining all those pieces together. And that made up for some of his deficiencies uh, on, on the battlefield on the day of battle. Because it wasn't his job to be the general. He has other generals. It's his job alone to be the commander-in-chief. And that's what he's really good at. So I want to now get into the, the Newburgh conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to talk about how it's sort of understood before your, your book. Mm-hmm. Um, and those characterizations. And to my mind, you know, uh, one of the reasons why I picked up your book, um, because, you know, I thought it would play into this narrative. You know, it's the age of sort of rebellion, right? You have Bacon's Rebellion, you have Shays' Rebellion, you have the Whiskey Rebellion, you have, you know, potential uh, 
you know, slave uprisings, and you just, it's, uh, you know, money's a, a difficulty, settling into the, you know, the kind of newness of you know, nationhood, you know, even early on in the late stages of the war, financial troubles, people leaving for Canada, it's a very difficult environment. And the Newburgh conspiracy um, sort of, you know, in that context makes a lot of sense, you know. Uh, And then, you know, if you stretch out that timeline a little bit, um, we get into like the Spanish conspiracy, you know, take Kentucky and, Mm -hmm. you know, and everything and and secede to to Spain or uh, in the War of 1812, um, New England seceding, you know, to... um, to, to the, the British. Um, so secession, conspiracies, just everything. It's a very tenuous, you know, uh, situation. So the Newburgh conspiracy, to me, you know, is a really integral kind of part of that. Um, is that how, how, you, how was it characterized, you know, in the, in the kind of main the historical narrative? Right, so what, uh, that, that's a really good um, introduction to how I came up, started the book project. I was actually listening to a book about the Whiskey Rebellion, and the author of that book uh, talked about the Newburgh conspiracy, very much like you just summarized there, that this was an, an earlier example of um, you know, the, the powerful elites and financial interests conspiring against the, the people. In this case, the officers and some financial interests in Philadelphia, the politicians there, conspiring against the officers and the soldiers in the, in the army. And I thought, you know, that sounds like a pretty big accusation there that Guys like like Washington, that there's possibly a coup planned to remove Washington from office. That some of the leading uh, politicians like Hamilton um, and Governor, uh, um, Robert Morris, who was the uh, kind of Treasury Secretary, the superten- Superintendent of Finance, his assistant Governor Morris. Those are big names. They're involved in this conspiracy against the army. That sounds like a really big deal. Um, you know, that, that'll be big if true. Or I should look into this. And I looked into the, what scholarship was supporting that, those, that, those passages in that book, and I found that the scholarship really traced back to uh, several articles that were exchanged in the early 1970s. And there hadn't been a lot new since the early 1970s. And this is about 2012, 2013-ish, I'm, I was, I was think, thinking about this. But, well, you know, 1972 is a, a long time ago yeah. now, you know, it's 40 years Actually, I could look into this, and surely I'll be able to find something new and different. Okay, um, even if I end up just kind of more or less confirming what was previously thought, it's still time to have a reexamination of this. It'd be something that's new. Um, by the way, it's hard to find new topics about George Washington, right? Oh, I bet <laughs> it's very hard. Yeah. Um, so, okay, this could be something, if not completely new, something updated. Mm-hmm. Then I started reading those sources and getting at some of their arguments and sources that they were based on, reading things. And it just didn't add up to me um, that there was that you could have pulled off a sort of tightly organized conspiracy that depended on a lot of moving parts at a time when communication was very difficult, and if some message goes awry, the whole thing falls apart. Okay? You know, message between Newburgh, New York, on the Hudson River, and Philadelphia—it's not too far, but it, you know, lots of things can go wrong, right? Um, how does this? How is this all going to work? So then I started looking into that more, more deeply. And one of the things I discovered was that people at the time thought this was a conspiracy, in part because they thought everything was a conspiracy. That, that's really, that, that was a really interesting um, understanding. And since we don't tend to think of everything as, as a conspiracy, I think people, historians later, tended to take the interpretations 
earlier at face value. So when they said it was definitely a plot to overthrow the overthrow the army, okay, well, why else would you say that unless it was a plot to overthrow the general's leadership? Well, part of it is because they're, they're, that's the way they think about everything. So trying to get into that mindset was a challenge. But so it was a challenge that I would like to kind of try and figure out what really how is it possible to figure out what really happened and what was most likely to have happened? So, so could you summarize for us the the kind of the you know the, the the understanding of what the Newberg conspiracy was and what it meant? So the traditional understanding was that um, there is a plot in place uh, hatched among the politicians in Philadelphia, where the Continental Congress is meeting, and officers in the uh, main part of the Continental Army in Newburgh. The plot is supposedly that the officers would uh, make uh, some kind of resistance to their leaders, possibly by replacing General Washington, with the goal of frightening the uh, Continental Congress and the state legislatures into enacting new taxes that would strengthen the central government as a whole. One of the chief complaints of one faction of politicians in Philadelphia was that the current government, called the Articles of Confederation, was too weak. It gave the states a lot of power the central government very little power. There was an attempt to pass a new tax that would give the central government its own money, kind of be able to pay its debts from the war, and that went down to defeat. So this has traditionally been seen as a way to frighten these politicians um, who are reluctant about giving the government more power, to give them more power to solve the crisis of an army that was rebelling against its leadership. And supposedly there's a plan to replace General Washington with a rival general, his his second-in-command general, Horatio Gates, Two of them had bad blood previously. Um, so that's been a traditional uh, explanation of what was happening. And, and what really did happen. So I, I don't know that we can... We, it's not conclusive, right? I, I would have loved to have found evidence that this was a plot and conspiracy. That's the kind of thing that gets you on you know, national uh, cable news shows and interviews and all that kind of stuff. Right? If you could prove that George Washington was part of a plot against the, his own government... That would have been really noteworthy and newsworthy. Uh, that's not what I found, unfortunately, uh, for the kind of <laughs> publicity of the book. But you have to go with what the sources are there. And what I found is that it's more, um, one of my colleagues, he said, he summarized my argument by saying, you're, you're more or less saying this is the Newberg misunderstanding more than the Newberg conspiracy. <laughs> I'm like, well, not quite. I wouldn't quite put it that way. But I think there's a lot, there is a lot of misunderstanding about what the other side's uh, intentions are, the communication difficulties, and the kind of anger um, that kind of boils over into saying things just to say things, right? And complain about, well, we, we, shouldn't, we should stay in the field and not go home. I don't think that was really ever on the table, uh, but it was certainly the kind of thing a frustrated, angry person would say. Mm. Uh, so in terms of, I don't think there's any evidence for a concerted conspiracy. If, if by conspiracy you mean like the guys are planning, you, they're going to do X, Y, and Z and try to get this outcome. I don't think that's what it was. A lot of people are discontented about things, and they want to try to pressure other people to do what they want. But at some level, that's what politics is, right? It's trying to persuade and even kind of pressure other people to do the things that you, you, the outcomes you want to have. Um, and so at some point it becomes... definitional, right? When when does that stop being politics and start being a conspiracy? I could certainly, I mean, I I could certainly see that in 20 years or 30 years, someone else could could look at the same evidence, 
possibly find new evidence and put it together a different way. Mm. Okay, so again, for students, I, I, I talk to some, they say, well, you know, how would you feel if somebody contradicted you? Well, they'd be fine if they have the evidence and they put it together in a different way. They're a different person who thinks differently. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's part of the game, yeah. right? Yeah. As long as they don't insult me along the way, that, 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 right. then that's, that's how history is done. So, so I, I want to talk about um, maybe one or two key characters okay. from the book. Um, but before I do that, just as an aside, I think, you know, for uh, anyone listening or watching, um, uh, the, you know, how interesting history can be when you look at that kind of the, the, the chain of causality mm-hmm. and if approached. And one of the exercises I would always run with my students was to look at, you know, the kind of mythology around Henry Clay. Okay. Um, you know, great Kentucky senator, you know, um, longstanding and... Um, really important to Kentucky history and the mm-hmm. mythology around him being just kind of a, you know, having troubles with alcohol and, you know, being a, you know, just kind of a crazy guy. And, um, you know, this gets back to the source tradition, you know, there's, there's, you know, if you look at the modern biographies of clay that kind of built up that and I'm mm-hmm. not saying, you know, he didn't have some of those attributes, but at least the, the source tradition is such as, you know, you look back, to you know biography in the 1970s which is you you, you follow the citations that's mm. the the trick uh follow the citations to a biography in the 70s and then you know something earlier and then back to an article published in harper's weekly and then everything points to that so okay mm. let's look at that article from harper's Week, uh, weekly and what does it say specifically mm. really nothing of consequence and right. so you know, it becomes sort of a game of telephone. And yeah. I think that's that's one of the most interesting things. Those citations, and so historians use, you know, Chicago-style, mm-hmm. uh, Kate Turabian, Chicago-style for a reason, right? Uh, because they're meant to be, you know, uh, reviewed, looked at, right. um, opened, and accessed. And so mm-hmm. check, this is how, you know, you check the work of other people right. for the reason that you're mentioning. Because, you know, someone will have, well, certainly have an alternative explanation or some nuance or add to the story. And that's what is so powerful about history is it, as it unfolds, um, there is more evidence, more source evidence, more interpretations, more, you know, and, and influences from other historical fields or social mm-hmm. sciences or sciences or economics or whatever to breathe new life into it. Uh, and to bring this back to your book, and I think that was, that was one of your great additions to the story was the economic context. Mm-hmm. And people have written extensively about Robert Morris, a really interesting guy. Some people have talked about him as a profiteer, um, others not so much, but certainly a statesman of longstanding. Um, what, what is your interpretation of Robert Morris? So Robert Morris is really is a really interesting guy. Um, he's in, he, he comes over from England as a, as a young teenager. He loses his father early on. Um, in, so, in some ways, his uh, uh, his story parallels Hamilton in a little way. Right? He comes to the United States as a way to kind of move up in the world without a, without a family. Um, he goes into business um, at one of the larger, uh, one of the more successful merchants in Philadelphia as a young man, then goes out and trades on his own. By the 1770s, he's one of the richest men in the, in the, in the colonies and one of the you know, leading merchants of that particular time. Reading his letters, this one of the great joys of um, his letters from the revolutionary period have been collected and published. So you can kind of follow through all of his, his business and political dealings. Um, and, they're, and they're just enormous. I mean, there's, it's only eight volumes just like that. Right? Yeah. Big, fat volumes. Uh, so trying to follow along how he did business and how, how the financing works. Sometimes they're calculating things down to the penny. And this is before 
not only before Excel, before calculators, right? Some, some guy, clerk is doing this by him to kind of realize how he's doing all these, these things. I think Morris, as far as the politics and the finances, he's someone who definitely wants to see the government, central government be more powerful, to have some independent source of money. But he, he wants to do this as the best way of keeping the country together. So he wants to kind of, kind of um, unify the country by everyone having a financial interest in its success. And by everyone, I guess, he doesn't really mean everyone. He really is targeting, you know, those people who have some property, some means. The, the wealthiest people, if they come along first, then that'll be the most important way to unify the country and others can follow after them. That's really the way his priorities work. Um, so it's not necessarily power for its own sake. He thinks this is the way that we gain unity is by paying our debts and having um, a way to raise money in the future. So, you know, if you just would repudiate our debts, like some people like, to, well, just don't pay it. Okay, fine, that solves the problem today. But what about 15 years ago from now when we, when we need more money? Now, who's going to lend us money if we have this history of not paying our debts? And he gets criticized by saying, well, no, you just want to favor your rich friends and pay them off to the end of the war. Um, it's like, well, I guess I will pay off my rich friends at the end of the war. But it's also about establishing credit. Right. So he says a lot. It's about establishing our credit as a nation. Um, it means that you know, literally your credit, the credit worthiness, but also you know, being a real country that is like, the, like other countries and deserves to be respected. It's hard to see now is how just how precarious it was for the United States. It could have easily have fallen apart. Different states go in their different directions. To have some kind of unity together as one nation, that was, that was a big goal. And the finances are a part of that. Yeah, unified in debt. Exactly, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, you're, there's no other, like, yeah, we have those debts together. There's no way we're going to pay these off unless it's together. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit, sure. and I want to talk about your most current book project, which uh, I think a lot of people will find fascinating. Mm-hmm. I hope you can say a little bit about sure. that um, this afternoon and this evening. Um, Scoundrels of uh, the early American Republic. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I guess a good place to start is, you know, who did you find, who, who did you find to be the, the most worthy of the title scoundrels? So this is a, a, edited, a edited collection that um, a co-editor and I are, have been working on. It should be out at the end of the year. This is the idea of my uh, collaborator, uh, Tim Hemis. He's a, he teaches at Texas A&M Central Texas and he had been noticing that there are all these scoundrels in the early republic, people like Aaron Burr and uh, James Wilkinson, who's not as well-known, but he's very well-known to specialists in the era. He's a general who seems to be involved in every kind of spying. And known to Kentucky. In Kentucky and, yeah. and you know, in all kinds of places. Um, uh, Benedict Arnold, of course, mm-hmm. is, the, is the big name. Um, so all these characters have been noticing, you know, what are these guys? Why do they keep those uh, cheating and spying and... Telling one thing to the government and buying land like crazy and defrauding their investors and uh, cheating Native Americans out of their land. Like, how does that work? It's not supposed to be what America is. And yet these guys, some of them attain positions of high, uh, of high influence. Uh, Aaron Burr was the, was the vice president of the United States, could have easily have been president. James Wilkerson was the highest ranking general in the U.S. Army at one point. So what is this all about? Um, so that's, that's what the book's origins were. And we found um, a dozen authors to write these individual biographical chapters of the, these characters, looking at right, what, what does it mean to be a scoundrel in the early republic, and how is it that 
these guys are allowed to operate, that they can be both seeking their own self-interest to enrich themselves and be government officials at a time when the official kind of public culture is that only the self-sacrificing should be anywhere near power. And these guys really show that no, these guys are very, they're wielding power when behind the scenes they're really not anything other than out for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite characters is um, uh, William Blount from, um, or Blount, I'm not, I'm, I don't know the pronunciation, uh, from Tennessee. And he gets a place, a position as a governor of the territory, and he's using his position just to buy land left and right. Um, he tells um, his brothers who are in the business with him, he tells them, you can go ahead and forge the titles to those things. It'll be fine. Like, what? You, can t- you can forge the titles <laughs> to this land and it'll be fine? Yeah. <laughs> what? what does that mean? I'm like, oh, yeah, go ahead and do it. You know, yeah. So he has just thousands and thousands of acres across Tennessee, and that's part of how Tennessee was, was built, is by this man accumulating all this from, from his position. Right. So just kind of looking at how that all worked and what it means for the, the new country to have been is that uh, our, our title is a, a Republic of Scoundrels. Yeah. Yeah. That's great title. So what does it mean to be a Republic of Scoundrels? Right, right. How much of this is tied up? I'm just curious. You know, listen, you know and I, I, listening to your uh, retelling of Blount, um, is, is tied up in land and, and speculation, which is such a huge part of the early republic. Fortunes are won or lost, and you know um, the, the the question of secession. And in Kentucky, those land battles are you know pretty important. Along the Maysville Road is a great book mm-hmm. um, that talks about the shingling over of land claims, and this is how you know Henry Clay and some others mm-hmm. made their vast fortunes because you'd have these kind of land warrants given out right. during the revolution competing with claims of, you know, like the Transylvania Land Company who comes out mm-hmm. and, you know, has a separate kind of claim or title. And then you have um, folks that are here as, uh, you know, just kind of squatters, basically. Mm-hmm. And then people who bought it, you know, um, you know, legally. Uh, and then a series of, so, you know, anytime you have land records in a, in a, uh, in a courthouse, that's, you know, surprisingly enough, every three or four years, that courthouse burns down uh, in mysterious right, circumstances. Right, right. Uh, and so Clay and others, you know, come to Kentucky to be attorneys and uh, and make vast fortunes settling those land claims. Mm-hmm. And just say, you know, give me give me um, a tenth of what I win you. Right, and, okay, uh, right. and, you know, so can you talk about land as part of the, is that a, is that a kind of a current, right, a thread that ties some yeah, of these people together? It ties a lot of the stories together. We actually, um, if you're, uh, Tim and I were joking, if you ever have a volume two, we could certainly find enough guys. Oh, boy, uh, yeah. With, uh, the, the, the Transylvania Company is yeah. one we didn't, we didn't get to. There's still a lot out there. Um, I think the land question, because land is the basis of wealth and status in this period. So it's still heavily agricultural um, economy. And you know, the fresh land, the land is, that hasn't been farmed by any Anglo-American uh, farmers previously, this is kind of your opportunity Mm-hmm. Um, if you haven't owned land before, this this is when it's going to be divvied up, and if you right. want it, it's there to be grabbed. Right. And a lot of times they're not especially nice about how they go and get it. Yeah. Um, and although they say the, the lawyers come in second and claim this to sort all this stuff out, and then that's how you build the institutions, right? Of what it means to have um, a legal system and the court system and all that kind sure. of thing builds on top of that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so land the land speculation, land dealings is something we see a lot of that too. And it's also you see the land between the different between the United States and Spain, for example. And these people don't often appreciate is the United States shares a border with Spain for some forty years mm-hmm. and it's, as the country's getting started um, because we don't we don't really think of that anymore. Yeah. 
Right? But there's it's the Spanish Empire in the Southwest, and who owns what? Right. right? It's something that they fight over. So. Yeah. So, so, um, so much of early Kentucky's history, you know, the coin of the realm, you know, uh, is, is really the Spanish pistole. You find that more than, mm-hmm. you know, American, you know, government banknotes. Right. Well, this goes back to Robert Morris and his difficulties. The inflation is so rampant in the American uh, Revolution. They stopped printing the, the paper currency, and they have some minting. It's not very good. Right. They're not very skilled at making it. Uh, so, yeah, you, you actually use foreign currency, like the Spanish the Spanish dollar, right. the Spanish yeah. money. Yeah. British money continues to circulate. Right. Right. So, so for, the, for the Kentuckians listening, can you talk about James Wilkinson a little bit? Yeah, so James Wilkinson, he's a really interesting guy. He seems to be... There didn't seem to be any deal that he wasn't involved in somewhere uh, along, along the borders there. But what they, the, the, the author who wrote that chapter, uh, Sam uh, Watson, he's a professor at the Military Academy at West Point, he made a really interesting observation. And he says that, you know, kind of all scholars have always known about uh, Wilkinson's his being a Spanish agent at the same time as a U.S. general. Probably shouldn't. I'm pretty sure the West Point Code doesn't allow that, <laughs> that kind of thing. And then spying on the Spanish and giving it to America. Okay. People have always known about this. But he asked the question, well, how did he get away with this for so long? When, you know, he was, had this relationship with four presidents who knew what he was about. How did he survive? You know, was he like, did he, was he like blackmailing them? That, that seems far-fetched. Or is it because he was actually good at some things? And it turns out that Wilkinson was actually good at some things. Uh, well, things beyond spying uh, for the Spanish, but things like you know uh, keeping the peace between um, the United States and Spain, negotiating as a diplomat. There's no it's up to the military guys to do diplomacy on the on the borders. There, he was a fairly effective uh, military commander when they needed him to um, to kind of put down some of Burr's uh, plotting and treat possible treason. Wilkinson sided with the United States. And he was uh, a leader, a general during the uh, War of 1812. So Wilkinson just wasn't this crazy person, you know, hiding his treason. He was actually good at some things. And he delivered some value for the United States as a whole. So it's, that, that was that, I think that chapter gives a really a nice new approach to, um, to Wilkinson. You know, what is it that he does that's valuable to mm-hmm. others mm-hmm. Okay, rather than mm-hmm. all the stuff we kind of know about that he just... Which, to my mind, is the interesting part about Benedict Arnold's story. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, he's a skilled military leader. Right. And he's he the, feels like he's overlooked and... I'm sorry. Right. He's, he's one of the best. Yeah. I mean, uh, cer- certainly as a battlefield commander. Mm-hmm. Um, he's wounded a couple of times. He loses his leg. So this is a, a man who's made right, enormous personal yeah. sacrifice. Yeah. And he never gets the recognition he deserves. The, our author of that chapter, uh, uh, Jim Martin, um, from the um, University of Houston, he points out that uh, Arnold was a scoundrel, right, choosing treason. But part of what drove him to that is all the other scoundrels he had to deal with in, <laughs> the, point, yeah. in, the, uh, in the army. And guys were lying about him and, you know, blaming him for defeats or taking his credit. Yep. And because they, those guys were more politically skilled, the politicians in Philadelphia believed them and they turned against Arnold. So part of it is he feels like he's been lied to and he's dealing with all these guys. Yeah. It's like, what, what's, what's the point here? Right. This is probably going to fail anyway. Right. And might as well hasten the end of the war and stop some kind of bloodshed. How, how, how close was Aaron Burr to, to succeeding in his plot? What was his plot and how close was right. it? Right, so Aaron Burr's plot, he's raising a, a, a force of men in, in the western part, what was then the western part of the country, 
possibly to form his own kind of empire. And you always start in Kentucky when you want to start a rebellion, right? Yes, right. So recruiting these men who are kind of dissatisfied with being ruled by this Eastern elite. And there's a lot of guys like that who think that things would be better in a new system. It's really hard to know exactly what he was planning, but I think one one of his strategies was that he would just kind of talk openly about all kinds of plans so that no one would ever be able to pin a particular plot on him. Mm. And that's ultimately what saves him from conviction in the treason trial, is that um, he never committed an overt act against the U.S. government. It was all planning. Uh, Possibly he was stopped and arrested before he could ever put it into motion. But because he never actually put anything into motion, so I was, well, let's get together and let's talk about this. What was the title he aspired to? Sort of grand, emperor. Grand Emperor. emperor. Yeah, yeah, emperor yeah. Yes. Yeah, right. um, <laughs> possibly. Or it could also be, you know, maybe he thought that, but also maybe he just says some kind of outlandish title. So then he goes, well, no, I never wanted to be emperor. But uh, right. who wants to be emperor? I'm an American. We don't ever want to be emperors. Yeah, yeah. So he's very skilled at giving himself enough plausible deniability. And as ultimately part of what saved him from, from being convicted for treason is that he did a lot of talking but never actually took that last step to, to, to raise arms against the United States. Yeah. Well, this is, this is a treat. I want to uh, spend a, a couple minutes as we wrap up here talking a little bit about the writing process, which is what I appreciate about your work the most, I think. I think you tell compelling stories. You tell them with humor. And I you know, really encourage anyone to pick up you know, just copies of, of any of your books. I think they, they, you know, there's a sardonic wit to them. <laughs> Uh, and it's it's publicly accessible. Uh, you tell great stories. It, you know you rely on kind of the you know character driven plots, if you would. Right. Um, and it's not academic writing, mm-hmm. you know, in in the sense that it's not for an audience, you know, of maybe a, a dozen or, or right. so. And uh, where it's you know buttressed by just you know heaps of historiography and uh, and uh, you know comes out of tradition. You follow that painstakingly. Um, but it is, I think, what really good history represents and, and what I respect most about um, the kind of public-facing nature of history. So your attraction to this kind of this style of writing and style of writing that I hold near and dear and mm-hmm. you know, something I aspire to, I don't, I don't think I'm going to get there, but the, you know, your approach, where does that come from? Um, and you know, what, what, um, what kind of models did you follow mm-hmm. you know, in, in the writing process? Right, so I think it comes from the way you expressed it, that you can have like academic research and academic ideas, mm-hmm. but that can be in the background. Yeah. And um, the way you express those ideas, you know, it, you always have to think about the audience, right? So if your audience truly is two dozen other professors, that's fine. There's some works that are designed for that. But if your audience is, you know, kind of a reading public who's interested in history, right. you have to... You have to dedicate things to that audience and what they need and what they expect and what they can, what they can digest, and you have to meet their needs. Okay? So that's kind of the, the conviction that I came into this with. I think a lot, I, you know, I learned, I've learned a lot in, in grad school from those very academic-focused books. But more broadly, I think I learned a lot from works that are for the more general audience, right? If you read broadly, you're very quickly outside your um, your expertise, where you need someone mm. right, to kind of mm. explain all these ideas to you, unpack all of it for you. Mm-hmm. So you have your narrow specialty, but anywhere out of that, you need someone to guide you through that. Right. Um, so that's, that was really where my conviction came from, is that that's the kind of book that I wanted to write the kind of book I would enjoy reading. Mm. 
Okay? A book that was smart and well-researched, but also enjoyable and funny and talked about real people doing things. Right. For me, you know, the, the ultimate... For me, the ultimate reason to do history is to try to understand another person, which is extremely difficult to do, right? Even family members, spouses, it's hard to understand each other, right? And even though you've dedicated your lives to each other, um, to try to understand someone from 100 years ago, 200 years ago, a long time in the past, is even more difficult. But it's also very rewarding because this is another human person like us. And to enter into their life, it's just, it's sometimes it's very humbling to be able to do that. And so I think I want to be able to share that, um, to build on the research that's been done, especially about the larger context and how people's lives are, but then to connect people to get to know another person. Um, you know, it's a, real, it's a real privilege to be able to do that. Yeah. And, and the humor, you know, where, do, where does that come from? Well, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just a strange person sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I just, honestly, a lot of it is it just, I'm just sitting there and I think, well, what's a, what's a, what's a better way I could say this, right? What's a more engaging way? And just something comes to me, or I'm just kind of writing a sentence, and I'm like, oh, let's let's just go with that idea. That's kind of a thing that might be colorful, right. and it just kind of comes together. Just these strange ideas just kind of come to me. Yeah. So sometimes it just comes to me. Sometimes it is just work is working at it. It right. really is saying, okay, this this is kind of flat. How do I punch it up? Right. Okay, right. and that's what I that's what I try to do. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I've had people kind of rein me in, saying, no, that's that's too silly. That, that's too lighthearted. Right. You can't go with that. But you're always, you're pushing. Yeah, I got to push out there. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, kind of, that's the benefit of having an editor, having colleagues who read this stuff, right? Right. They can say, no, don't do that. No, don't be silly, David, right? right. Come on. Right, right, right. <laughs> that's too far. Um, yes. So that's, that's where a lot of it comes from. And, you know, it's having... It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be fun to do this. Right, right. And enjoyable. And accessible. Yeah, and interesting. Yeah, interesting, right, yes. Right, right, right. And so, so Scoundrels will be out? Uh, uh, December of this year. Okay. And then what, what's next? I'm still working on uh, deciding what to, what to do next. Um, for me, in my process, t- topic selection is vital. So right, choosing the right topic that I can do, that I can be enthusiastic about for yeah. a number of years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've already discarded a couple of things that sounded great, but just... For various reasons, just they're not going to work. I, I'm always impressed by historians who are able to really kind of jump chronological or topical areas, mm-hmm. right? Because most of most of, most historians, um, you know, you just kind of you, you stumble upon your next topic right. while you're researching your current one. So to get completely out of it, sometimes people are tired. You know, right. I, I took my dissertation and really just kind of threw it in the garbage mm-hmm. and then just started over for my first book, mm-hmm. um, and. You know, I, I really I appreciate that uh, that that ability to just kind of you know get up and pick and move. But it is a lot easier, you know. And you come from one project to the next. I don't know if you resonate this with with a new set of uh, tools, you know, right. and and an appreciation for kind of different nuances and historical evidence that you can bring mm-hmm. into to bear into a, another topic. So I am really curious. I'm you know a personality driven, personal you know a character driven sort of story about sort of a, a, a re-looking at American history, I think those are the most compelling stories we can tell. Right. Those, that, that's what I like to read. Yeah. So whenever, I really want to write something that I, I would like to read. Yeah, yeah. great. Because so, I guess I'm going to be the one reading it the most. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, no, that's for sure. So you, better, you, better, you better enjoy it. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Head. Really appreciate it. This will be a, this is the start of a great day. Thanks so much for being here.